0: Acting as moderator for tonight's broadcast. Welcome to Be Reasonable. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. I grew up in a mid 1800s farmhouse in a town of 500 people in the Northeast. When we weren't in school, our days were spent outside, not because we were tiny outdoorsmen, but because my mother didn't want to hear us scream at each other indoors within our property lines. We had one quarter of a pond, some small rolling Hills scattered with maple trees, tiny oaks and other trees. I should not be expected to know by name. There was a Creek sometimes. As the years passed, it became much less of a creek. Sometimes it was just a sopping ditch, and forget-me-nots would grow on its sides during the spring. Year by year, the weather got drier. It's more ditch than creek now. The wet years don't fill it anymore. Now they just turn the lawn to mud. Sometimes that lasts until the cooler seasons start again. It's no longer there. I know this only from pictures taken of the area with my nephews, whom I rarely get to see. But on the rolling hill 50 yards back from the house, there used to be a small tree fort, its frame securely nailed in the pocket of three dying maple trees. The boards were aged before we ever saw them dark and weathered red paint peeled from the sides of the structure and you could see the grains of the wood framing pull apart as they dried rusted nails pulling and contracting as seasons changed and time continued to expand these woods perpetuated themselves in every direction we looked and when we were outside as commanded we were after all free-range country children in the 80s we explored as far as we were allowed There's no part of that small forest that my feet didn't touch. There are only glimpses in my memory when I try to recall them. But I know the people who traveled with us. One of the kids who often joined us on these small adventures had a father who was a veteran. He's now what I think of as the not insane version of a prepper. He taught us how to purify creek water and make it safe for drinking, how to start a fire from flint and steel, and how to aim and shoot a pistol. As a child, I thought, oh, hey, this guy knows some cool shit. Now I think this proud servant of a nation had a scene from the past that would perpetuate itself in everything he did. A comfort with the fact that the madness of the world was a part of life and sometimes needed facing. He wasn't naive about the ever-present chance of real danger, not like we are now. My friend's parents became friends with my parents, and one afternoon, when his family was at my family's house, he ventured with my brothers and I out into the woods up by the tree fort. The barriers then were old stone walls, but they were cracked and collapsing, and our property line extended beyond the one the tumbling piles of stones were meant to represent when they were built. Old broken beer bottles and tin cans with two triangular holes punched out, one for pouring, one for air. Were the only man made items we would cross no matter how far we wound our way through the trees, most of the time. Now and then, the leaves and old branches hid boards from small structures that collapsed decades earlier. Now and then, these boards had rusty nails in them. Now and then they stuck up at the perfect angle to meet the bottom of someone's Nike high tops and a moment later someone's on the ground writhing in pain with a rusty spike lodged an inch deep in their plantar fascia. One of us, I don't remember which, ran back to the house to retrieve some parents. Our friend's father raced out into the woods to find his son crying in pain. Without a moment's delay, he dislodged the board and nail from his son's foot tore off the sock, and began sucking the poison from the wound, hoping to avoid tetanus. The closest emergency room was at least a 45-minute drive from our remote town. In the same general time frame, those family friends purchased a boat, the kind with a small cabin below deck with small bunks and a bathroom for long trips. It would stay docked about an hour from where we lived. One summer evening, we were all at the boat for a cookout. Our parents were lounging around. Enjoying the food and the weather, laughing probably. Some of the kids were swimming, but not me. I don't often swim twice in one day. Wet, dry, wet again, that's too much. I didn't see what happened, but the same friend was down in the water, out of sight from his parents, when he started screaming. His dad leapt to his feet and was flying off the boat into the water, fully clothed, before the rest of us had time to turn around. His son was never actually in any danger. Maybe he was playing, maybe not. His dad made his way out of the water, shook himself off, sat back down on the boat soaking wet, and grabbed his beer. These actions were quick and decisive and may well have made a difference in saving his child's life. But their effectiveness and their necessity are irrelevant. What is relevant is that this man had long ago lost the illusion of safety and traded it for the knowledge of ever present danger, the will and fortitude to live among it and to confront it head on whenever and wherever it presented itself. His actions led first by the fear of enduring a world without his child represented themselves in the sort of conditioned reactive bravery that used to be a regular feature of our society possessed by men and women. People around my age were the last people in America to be faced with a real imminent threat of potential physical destruction. Before us, our parents were born in the years following the end of World War II. They were born and raised missing fathers or uncles. Their older siblings went to Korea. Some grew up to protest Vietnam. Others had their number called. Some, like my father, left college shortly before the draft ended, thankfully. Thankfully. Today's kids, no matter what the anti-gun proponents will tell you, are not the first generation that learned how to hide under their desks. I was eight years old before Reagan told Gorbachev to tear down the wall. A few years later, we watched the neon green night vision video of American missiles chasing down their targets in Iraq and the Scud missiles of the enemy missing most of what they aimed for. The war was fought in real time on television 10,000 miles away. The U S was overwhelmingly successful and there was never a palpable sense of danger. At least none I could detect the cold war ended. And aside from excursions in Kosovo and Somalia, again, a world away, the threat of physical danger became so irrelevant a part of life that we began to concern ourselves with smaller and smaller forms of physical safety. Our appetite for risk diminished because of how we imagined we could eliminate it completely. This sense of safety was shaken on 9-11, but the nearly two decades since have reinforced the idea that our moment of danger was fleeting and distant. It was localized, and if we weren't few enough degrees of separation from anyone in the towers or on those planes that day, could we really feel threatened? We've avoided similar terrorist danger, by whatever means, since then. Meanwhile, we've assured ourselves that our safety is constantly being handled as we de-shoe and unbelt ourselves in the airport for no reason. Throw out water bottles and toothpaste tubes for no reason and allow a machine that makes us look like Westworld automatons to scan our genitals. The war or occupation or however you refer to it now was fought again 10,000 miles away. But this time the war was fought by people, the chattering class, the lottery winners by genetics or meritocracy, and you can count me among them if it makes you feel good. Simply did not know. It's easy to argue that a war should or shouldn't be fought when nothing that can happen could ever measurably change your life. This remains true even while vast fortunes disappear in the desert ether, trillions of dollars that some Americans someday will have to pay for. The debt, like foreign wars, is a theoretical danger. Money is a concept, you know, like gender. Now give us free iPhones. There are many things we depend on for our safety. The locks on our doors and windows prevent invasions most of the time. So does living in the country most of the time. Our airbags are there to save our lives when the seatbelts don't do the trick. In the event that the traffic lights and signposts don't do the trick. If someone else's brakes or driving skills or morals don't do the trick in the event that none of those things do the trick we have lawsuits to extract money from companies who could have saved us if they were more responsible or maybe not but we'll get their money regardless because the system is set up in a way that allows us to push the day we face reality further and further away we cry through our iphones on temperpedic beds about how more must be done to fix everything we are after all the richest country the world has ever seen How do problems still exist? How does danger still exist? We were told we would be safe. By whom? By whom? I was not told I would be safe. The first day of spring in 1990, while I was sitting in my sixth grade classroom, it began to snow. For a while we watched it. It wasn't shocking. It could snow in upstate New York on the first day of spring. Outside it began piling up. The snow got wetter, thicker, heavier. Eventually, the announcement came over the loudspeakers that we were going to call it a half day and that we'd be released to go home. We boarded the school bus like we were skipping school with no consequences. Who doesn't like getting off work early? It continued snowing on the ride home. The roads were packing faster than the snow plows could clear them. I guess that's why they released us early. I remember perfectly sitting in my seat, my head leaning against the cold glass window, steaming while the bus hugged a turn as we ascended a hill before the bus's next stop. When the brakes squealed for the stop, the wheels didn't stop moving. A slippery moment later, the school bus was stopped, seesawed at an immobile angle on the edge of a drainage ditch. That's the last image I have until much later. The time between wasn't the exciting part of the story. That's the part my brain didn't really bother assessing. I don't remember if the police were there when we finally arrived home or not. My mother was there. She was working, at the time, at a public library 15 or 20 twisting miles from the house. She scheduled her hours so she'd be home when we were. We would have beat her home that day due to our early release, but for the ditch. The house was cold when we walked inside, and when we mentioned it, our mother told us it was because the back door had been left open. What? Why? Why did you do that? No, no, she hadn't. The door was left open by the person or persons who entered my childhood home on the first day of spring while I was in sixth grade or maybe seventh. And they took my family's new IBM PC computer, the only high priced item in the entire house, as well as a black flying V guitar with a flame painted on it, my brother's and my mother's deceased mother's engagement ring. All we'd lost was that. I remember police in the house around five or six I remember my mother telling us that most criminals were stupid, and that's why they were criminals. Maybe. We had dinner later than usual, maybe because of the police, but I'm an unreliable narrator. While my parents discussed parent things in the kitchen, I watched Rescue 911 on Fox. We didn't have cable, so it was grainy. Another home invasion. Another child or small woman on the floor, under the bed, her door locked. Frantically calling the 911 operator and whispering, He was just... Outside the room, there wasn't a single night that passed from that night until I'd been gone a year, two years for college, that I slept through without planning escape routes in my nightmares. I would play computer games on the replacement computer now hidden upstairs in my parents' bedroom, so no one looking in our windows at ground level could possibly know it was there, unless, of course, they simply looked up. It was in front of the bedroom window. And I sat there playing Joe Montana football with a perfect view of the dark country road outside our house. My parents were out. It was dark. The police had said that maybe there was a spate of burglaries, maybe 10 or 20 miles away, that might have been committed by two guys in a light blue van. And maybe there was a connection. But every van looks dark black on a country road at night. And the only light tailing this dark comet is the one radiating from around the license plate. And if you look fast enough, I swear you can tell from that light whether or not it's a van bumper. And if it is and your parents aren't home, then what if it turns around? And how many vans might drive down the road tonight? I know fear. I spent my teenage years in a permanent state. In those nightmares, my small perspective would guide my small body into the angular storage space next to my bedroom under the wide V of the roof where there was a square foot hole cut in the floor as a laundry chute. I'd slip through this and race to the phone while the vicious criminal prowled the upstairs bedrooms to no avail. I would call 911 just like on TV, but just the same I'd get a deadline like they have in the movies because that crafty criminal had sabotaged it before he came in. I'd run outside knowing the closest house was an eighth of a mile away or something. In my nightmares, I had no brothers. I would start the eighth of a mile run on my own, and the dream would end there. In some, I'd have acquired a rope ladder that I would hang from my bedroom's second floor and climb down to the same run. Those dreams would always end running. I knew all my escape routes. There would be two ways to interpret the meaning of my absolute state of perpetual physical danger through my teenage years. You could say that I'd have felt safer, slept better if my parents had done more to make me feel safe. There was no gun. There was no family meeting to plan escape routes. There was only the understanding, satisfactory or not, that it was unlikely something like that would happen again. And in nearly 30 years, it hasn't. The other way to think about it is to realize that my fear of that house ever being invaded again subsided when I was gone at college, habituating myself to different new experiences, being hundreds of miles from home and being entirely in control of my own life independently from the moment I woke up until the moment I went to sleep. Yes, I have to admit that my parents were helping to fund my education. So if that's a retort to being in control of my own life, it's a bad one. And now you fuck this all up by even making me say it. The second way, though, proved correct. What stopped the nightmares was knowing that I was responsible for my own safety, physical and otherwise from now on. Rather than planning escape routes at night in my dreams, I spent my days building communities, understanding systems and hierarchies, and A-B testing my world. I fixed chewy ramen in the microwave of the common room on my dormitory floor. The next night, a rich kid would teach me how to solve problems with money. There are different approaches. There is protection in the world. It's just not the kind someone else can give you. This realization was no slight to the comfort my parents provided me, not at all. It was the simple understanding that my life was now mine, and the parachute we all think we have as children was never really there and certainly isn't now. Maybe that's the essence of becoming an adult. Now we are adults. We show up at work on time or with lattes and excuses. We keep the dinner date we had scheduled or we say something came up. We ask for the promotion or we don't. We say yes for safety, we say no for safety, we stay with a bad partner for safety, or we leave them for safety, we stay at our job for the safety of our company healthcare, or we leave that shit for the safety of our self image because living like this is beneath us. We fail to speak our minds for the safety of not being destroyed by mindless drones on a platform that literally exists in the clouds, or we say it because we know there's a potential future world far less safe than this one. And there are those who will unintentionally with no ill will bring that world into being. If we lose our jobs or homes, we have the government to save us, or at least we pretend we do. We expect the FCC to save us from dangerous words or images on TV or in movies. We have newspaper editors to save us from opinions we don't like. We have social media shame mobs to deal with the rest. I would say we've gotten fat and happy, but there aren't enough happy people. What we are is a complacent people who have bred fear into our very bones into our DNA. We understand the dangers of the world in action movies where a great hero saves us or a horror where stupidity is the defining characteristic of everyone around us and the last victim miraculously survives by doing the most common sense thing possible. Which one better represents the reality in which we operate? We're fed a steady diet of the dangers of the world on cable news and social media. If I've consumed correctly, I can recount the most pressing dangers for you without a second thought men white men brown men christians muslims gay men lesbians women brown women transphobes people who see color people who don't see color and people who see color because not seeing color is dismissive and dehumanizing everyone is dangerous why else would we be forced to practice prohibition of other people How and when did we decide that the way to deal with our problems was to ask a lower middle-class Indian kid working in outsourced customer service if we could speak to a supervisor? We have now been home with our phones and ourselves for four weeks or five or more. Very few of us know. We no longer exist in time. We exist in a void. This void is immeasurable, backward or forward. We imagine this is where and when we've always existed, but we have not. It's easy on the timeline I've described to imagine ourselves somehow outside of history. The possession of this thought alone would be enough to have a gender studies major call us privileged as if they were on a different timeline somehow. They're not. The understanding of history that exists in my head is with the edges blurred. There were dinosaurs, then there were cavemen, then the Athenians drew a map for philosophy, and the Arabs created math, and warring nations created the art of war, and then at some point the Chinese gave Italy pasta, and now Christopher Columbus, whatever. Then some guys in wigs had a meeting in Philly and wrote some stuff about which men say what, and then Harriet Tubman freed the slaves, and now we're here, right? In history, people fought with blades and spears while riding horses. They stood on bread lines and grainy pictures in sepia or black and white. They fought wars in period pieces in planes we could knock out of the skies with a slingshot, as long as a famous actor was the one shooting. People had polio and wheelchairs. Those are only for cripples now, or people in the airport. And we're not allowed to say cripples. That's how far removed from history we are. Until we're standing six feet from the person in front of us in the line to buy dog treats at Trader Joe's as the back of the line stretches two blocks in rear view and the front of the line twists through stanchions and around parking spaces, like the 45-minute wait in line was for Space Mountain and not relatively inexpensive milk. We give up finding toilet paper after the fourth or fifth store. In the history books, we saw bread lines as a mark of poverty and lack rather than a part of the day we just dealt with. Whatever happened in the past couldn't happen to us now. We're past that point. There is no lack. We're not impoverished. The lines we stand in are a temporary state. We will soon decide life is normal again, and these lines will become blips and outliers. None of this is history. None of this is even real. In history, our exotic goods like spices and tea and luxurious silks came to our shores on great ships that navigated waters made peaceful by the guard of strong navies and peace treaties. Now we get six pairs of socks for $2.99 that teleport here from China directly onto small metal hooks on the perforated walls of Target. Those metal hooks only there by virtue of teleports from Ohio or Arkansas or maybe one of the Dakotas. The goods arrive on schedule. The seas are not threatened, except in those places where they are. We live in a world where countries still attempt to dominate shipping routes, and surprisingly, they do so not to our advantage. There are still leaders of very powerful nations uninterested in the sort of peace we propose, the one pursuing the good of American citizens. And because the supply of cheap socks and iPhones never dries up, we get to imagine that they never could threaten it. We get to imagine that the nations we trade with seek our betterment in the same ways we pretend to seek theirs online and in the academy. Search your heart and mind. Is there any small piece of you that has any clue what it's like to wake up a lower middle class Chinese citizen whose entire family's labor is traded by force to make your iPhone and socks cheaper? I can assure you I have no understanding of this. Yet we expect them to be acting ever in our interest because like you, O oh, saint of non-binary sociology, O oh, master of dance therapy, O oh, sage of cultural appropriation. They're only acting in a way that ushers in our common utopia, where we can shop for live pangolin if the appetite arises, and they can watch Grey's Anatomy when they leave the factory floor to the dorms that house its indentured servants with suicide nets outside the windows." We learn what we need to learn from the movies. Our mass popular culture produces after checking with the country who through intention or negligence released a pandemic upon the world. Every superhero movie you've watched for the last 15 years was approved of by the same people who told you the virus couldn't touch you. That fantasy was repeated by a media chock full of people who were the children of people who made good decisions. Those children wore bike helmets until they wore bike helmets and elbow pads until they wore bike helmets and elbow pads and knee pads and cast custom mouth guards. We busied ourselves with branded cereals and branded backpacks and branded genres of music. And now we stand next to branded displays and branded stores for backpacks we wear and branded pictures, which we hope to monetize because once we can do that, everything becomes easy. Our opinions are handed to us by those who spent the time to cultivate them for profit, and now we cultivate the same in hopes of profiting ourselves by fitting in. We order our lattes at a certain temperature with a certain kind of milk. We stay in our homes and tell ourselves it's not so bad, right along with the media figures who grew up safe just like us. The problem with delegating our thinking to our media and cultural surrogates is that they know almost nothing about our lives. We imagine because we follow them on Twitter, their lives are the same as ours. If they say shelter in place, they're probably right. They know how it is to stand in an hour long line at the grocery store. We pretend to know this about them while they joke about how long Postmates took to arrive. They scream at their neighbors for not wearing masks while walking their dogs as they wait for a delivery driver to set their food down 10 feet away, already knowing that they tip 25% or maybe not. No, they wouldn't do what you do in the same situation. No, they don't feel what you feel trapped inside, unable to work while they get paid to scream at Trump from their laptops, eating Hot Pockets for the kitsch factor while you go broke paying rent jobless and eating Hot Pockets for sustenance. This is why we have no answers to questions of morality. We've never had to consider the questions in the first place. We just accepted a standard. We understand how poor people live through stories a Harvard graduate told us. They expect the poor to hold out just like they are, but they're not holding out. They're not struggling through. We are in a state of static pause because our betters told us that's what we must do. But for how long? We are days or weeks, probably not months, away from some public leader telling us it's time to go back to work. We will pick up the pieces of the society we systematically dismantled in the interest of future safety, in the interest of attaining once more the illusion of safety. We're sure it's only a few steps away. We can Hansel and Gretel our way back. Surely we remember the path. The only thing that's stopping us from walking confidently into this future is the unsafety of it all. Except for the sake of argument that our current fetal ball is unsustainable. We cannot live each day in our apartments and houses. If you think we can, congratulations, you're part of the problem. You live in a way the rest of everyone can't afford. Your encouraging admonishments about how everyone breathing freely in public is killing someone's grandmother are very interesting to everyone who doesn't have to worry about people close to them being unable to eat because we step each day closer to lack, which moves us each day closer to anarchy. We can pretend a state of chaos only exists in history next to the bread lines until we remember the bread lines are just down the street we were never promised safety. Our political leaders now promise us they will pay our debts and educate us to prepare us for jobs. We wouldn't otherwise be equipped for convincing us that our moves up the rungs of the ladder will be enabled by a helpful government in a way we couldn't possibly achieve on our own. They do this to take more power, knowing all the while they will not give us the safety they promise. College isn't something we choose to invest our time and money in now. Not that it's so worth it. It's merely four years of state-sponsored accreditation that will enable us to hang a framed certificate on the walls of our home offices in the backgrounds of our YouTube videos as we assume our rightful perch in society's power structure. Now we are on top. Below us are the capitalists, the greedy, and the vain. We heroes take the top for ourselves, and here we practice safety like yoga. Namaste. These people have grabbed the mantle, not by any great act of will or skill, but by hammering into the skulls of our culture, the belief that they have solved our problems. Theoretically, we systematically intentionally halted and destroyed the health and prosperity of our society to save the most vulnerable. And hopefully we did. We hope it was worth it. It can be if we make it so. But making it so means stepping beyond the boundary before we're theoretically willing to. Theoretically, we should stay indoors for another few weeks or few months or few years, depending on which theorist is speaking. We need to shelter in our homes until the theorists say it's safe to emerge. In the meantime, our theoretical fantasists have assured us that the money to pay everyone for everything just exists in the ether until theoretical astronauts develop the technology to suck it from that dimension into this one, where it forms in our wallets as paper money useful in an exchange for goods and housing and flat screen televisions. We will come out when it's safe, theoretically. The problem with social theory is that it doesn't work. Scientific theory is formed by feedback and failure. Social theory is formed by wishing and hesitance. Social theory can be followed by those who have nothing to lose by its constant and perpetual wrongness. The theorists forming our current world are the sorts of people who believe socialism would be better, theoretically, because why not? The promise of ever-present self-sustaining safety empowers us to believe we can fix all of our problems all of the time if only we sacrifice a little bit. And by we, we mean the millionaires and billionaires and oligarchs. The way we hack the system is by hacking the people who hacked the system. Hallelujah. We were never promised safety. In the coming days, An irrational president will tell us that it's time to recommence normal life, and by virtue of his position, no small portion of this country will happily comply. I will be among them. The media and your cultural betters will tell you that this is mistaken, and we must listen to this or that expert who told us Trump would never be president, and once he was, that he was only there because of Russian collusion, and then later, that he would surely be impeached before we ever had to consider him winning again. We'll be told it's unsafe by someone who double majored in journalism and gender studies after attending a private school with the sort of preppy brats that these other preppy brats pretend to mock in an attempt to erase their inherited privilege. It's convincing as ever. They have all the best words. They will promise you an absence of safety if you dare to do what they dare not. The world will reopen. Some of us will reemerge in it with the same priorities we had, feed ourselves, feed our families, and work toward a day when our comforts and happinesses come a little easier than they did today. The rest will stay inside, screaming through their keyboards at a world no longer bored enough to pay attention to them all day on Twitter. There will be days or weeks or months where these people stay inside, demanding compensation from a government in unimaginable debt paid for by those members of society who are able to go out and increase the GDP that funds it. They will preach bewildered and bewildering mantras of socialism and welfare meant to subsidize their complacency while vulnerable communities go out and work to become less vulnerable. These theorists will accept the fruits of the labor of the vulnerable in support of their permanent state of fear while they fall asleep to clips of James Corden. For five years, a not inconsequential portion of our society has sought the safety of an angry and powerful father named Trump or named Sanders, where it used to pray to God. Find comfort in the fact that the cavalry is not arriving. There is the hazardous and cruel real world outside and the static and boring panic of the indoors. We have seen and known people braver than us. Every person older than we are has seen and known something far more dangerous than what we will face when we emerge. The people before us stormed Normandy and fought for civil rights and women's rights. They were drafted into wars we supported, wars to preserve our freedom and wars no one wanted to take ownership of understand that the people who have the outsized egos necessary to compete, to be our rulers, don't have the moral courage to tell society the one simple truth we all know, but that none of us will speak. No matter what we do, people will die. We were never promised safety. We don't sit fearful on our love seats, watching documentaries about meth-addled tiger owners at the thought that we might die in a car crash or, through no fault of our own, crash our cars into someone else and kill them. If the theorists measured between COVID and car crashes, which would you guess is more likely? We've lost the American ethos, we pretend it's uncouth to maintain it, as if the view we project a ourselves from the French fashion designers we imagine to be our cultural overlords is more relevant than whether or not we can earn our rent. How? We were never promised safety. There will be a span of time between when our country quote unquote reopens and when we've produced a fully safe vaccine. In that time, we will have to give space to those who are concerned where we feel safe and allow the movement of those who feel safe while we're concerned. We shouldn't be deterred by the threat of a cough down the block, poisoning our grandmother, and we shouldn't be subject to the constant nag and scold of those who think that threat is real. Everyone is going to have to understand that we're all operating on the same information about how to keep ourselves safe while not subjecting those around us to undue danger. People will emerge from all this stronger. Some will emerge better prepared to navigate the new landscape thrust upon us. None of us will get any credit for complaining that that landscape wasn't the one we had intended before. We get one choice. Deal with reality as it is presented to us. This was only ever our only choice. We were never promised safety. I take comfort in that.